Hello, and welcome to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. Every week we'll cover one of the many reported cases of reincarnation so we can bring the discussion out into the light about what happens to our souls after death. But before we go too much further, I'd like to thank Raphael Crux for allowing us to use his music from the freepd.com public domain music site. So this week we'll be continuing on with the case of Bridie Murphy and if you recall, in the last episode we looked at how the regression sessions came into being between Maury and Virginia and we also covered Bridie's early life in County Cork. But before we continue on with the list of facts of Virginia's memories, I came across an interesting fact that caught me a bit by surprise so I'll talk about this first so that we can then move on to the next half of Bridie's life as it's something I mentioned in the last episode and I want to try and keep all of this in as much chronological order as possible as there's so much information to get through it can get very confusing. So if you recall from the first episode the point was made that Bridie said that Brian was called Sean in the church and I said that she pronounced it Siam or Shiam. But after checking back in the book because of this rather surprising find I found, she actually pronounced it according to Murray's phonetic spelling of it, Sian, as in see an object, Sian. The skeptics asked why didn't she know how to say Sean the way it was said in Ireland. They gave this up as proof that Virginia's recall of Bridie was false, as she couldn't even say the word the way it was meant to be pronounced. And if you recall, I countered by suggesting that perhaps the word isn't Sean at all, as why would Brian be called Sean? Well, I think I've found the answer. As I was doing the final tidy-ups for this second episode, I was listening to a YouTube vid called How to Say Irish Gaelic Boys' Names because I had a name that I wasn't sure how to pronounce. As I was sitting there waiting for the name I was really there to hear, the young woman on the site gave the pronunciation for Brian in Irish Gaelic, and you say it, Brian. So did someone in the church call Bridie's husband Brian in Irish Gaelic, and Virginia remembered this as Sian? Sean in Irish Gaelic is the way you would expect it to be said. It's Sean. And everywhere else Bridie encounters the name Sean, she says it correctly. So why would she say it differently on this one occasion? She was determined it was Sean, as she even spelled it out, but is that Bridie's memory or Virginia's mind interfering with the memory to make it fit? It makes a hell of a lot more sense for it to be Brian than Sean pronounced wrongly. Did Virginia Ty get the word wrong? Was it really Brian and not Sian? I find myself thinking it might have been. If Bridie really did mean Brian, then it gives me a shiver up the spine to think that the only reason we ever found this out is because we had to wait over 200 years for people to recognise and regret that Irish Gaelic was dying out and actively start a revolution to save it. Without that revolution, we might never really have known. I'm glad to say it's had a resurgence and people are again using it and learning it, but that doesn't explain how Virginia Ty knew of the correct pronunciation of words in a language that was rarely spoken. And as a final note, as if to prove to me never to take things for granted, you may recall that in a passing note in the first episode, I said that Bridie played the lyre, but she pronounced it the leer. At the time, I thought this pronunciation is wrong, as in English, of course, we pronounce it the lyre. 
but I included it because it was a stated fact from Virginia. I've never heard it called a leer before, so I did some fact-checking on how lyre is pronounced in Ireland, and it turns out there are three different pronunciations, depending on which province you're in. In Connacht, they say live. In Ulster, they say la. And in Munster, where Bridie grew up, they say leer. So not only did Bridie pronounce it correctly, she pronounced it the way she would have learned it growing up as a child in Munster. There is a lot more to this story than you fully glean the first time you encounter it, and this fact alone has convinced me that Virginia definitely had genuine memories. But to continue our recount of the other facts of Bridie's life, let's take up her life again in her new home of Belfast. So Bridie said that she was actually married twice, once in Cork and then again when they got to Belfast. Bridie doesn't mention a lot about the Cork marriage, just that they were married and the implication is that she never told her parents about the second marriage, as Bridie told Maury guardedly that he was not to repeat that fact. It's interesting that Virginia related that Bridie married twice. Until 1753, marriage in Ireland and the United Kingdom was, quite frankly, a bit of a schmozzle. A person was considered married if bans were called or a marriage license was obtained and the preference was that the marriage should be celebrated in a parish where at least one person was a resident. But everybody had different rules and different viewpoints on what constituted legal marriage and there was even a mistaken assumption that simply exchanging consent to be married was enough in some quarters but that was not legally the case. The Clandestine Marriages Act of 1753 came into being because of a Scottish marriage whose legitimacy was disputed in court. When the Clandestine Marriages Act came in, the only marriages that were legally recognised were those that had been performed by the Church of England, Jews and Quakers. Any marriage falling outside of these categories was not recognised as a legal marriage. This meant that to ensure the marriage was legally recognised and that any children issuing from the marriage could legally be considered legitimate and could inherit, everyone else, Roman Catholics, Hindus, Muslims, you name it, had to undergo an Anglican service and that obviously clashed with the tenets of their own religious faith. So Roman Catholic priests often recommended that their parishioners be married in the Roman Catholic Church but then have another Anglican service to ensure the marriage was legally recognised. In Bridie's case, the cork ceremony would have been the Anglican service and therefore the legal wedding and the Belfast one would have been indeed to satisfy Brian's religious beliefs. For the wedding in Belfast... Father John posted the bans regarding the upcoming marriage and these were published in church, as was the custom at the time. The bans are basically a declaration of the impending marriage that were posted publicly before the wedding, asking anyone who has any religious or legal objections to the marriage to come forward and list their concerns. Bridie was married at 20. She said Father John married them in a cottage in one of his rooms, as Bridie couldn't be married in a church because she refused to convert to Catholicism. Interestingly, at one point in the sessions, she spoke of the fact that Father John never married himself and sounded almost tearful. I find myself wondering whether Bridie had a bit of a crush on Father John. 
She remembered Father John's surname was Gorin, which she later amended in a later session to Gorman. Virginia claimed that he was the priest of St. Teresa's Church. So one of the main points raised by the sceptics is that Brian attended St. Teresa's Church and St. Teresa's Church in Belfast was not built until 1911. So they say Brian could not possibly have gone there. Well, there are two points to make with regards to this. Firstly, Maury asks Virginia specifically, what church did you go to? So Virginia's subconscious mind may have tried to provide the information and could possibly have accessed the name St. Teresa from her current life. Pueblo did in fact have two churches connected with St. Teresa at the time of the sessions. And that doesn't mean that all of Virginia's memories aren't valid, just that perhaps the name might not be valid. This would not be a case of Virginia being deceptive, but more the problem of her conscious mind while under hypnosis trying to answer a direct question it had no answer to, so to speak. The problem with hypnotic regression is that the brain is suggestible and may possibly provide incorrect facts under direct questioning. It can confuse acquired information as remembered memory. And this is the reason that hypnosis is not used in criminal investigations and interrogations. The sceptics considered Virginia's memories false, as they claim that all of the information she provided is an example of cryptomnesia. I think most of the names that Bridie provides in her recollections, including her own, were examples of this, but there's just too much information that Virginia knew for this to be a case of fully cryptomnesia. The second point to make about the name of the church is to do with the way Belfast was structured at the time. I found a map of Belfast from the early 1800s. Unfortunately, it isn't a dated map, so I can't tell you exactly what year it was drawn, but it looks to be from the correct period of the 1800s and it ties in with the other facts I found out about Belfast from that time. On the map, none of the churches, no matter what denomination, are named except for St Anne's. The Irish Historic Towns Atlas is extremely detailed and while it lists three Catholic churches as being in existence in the 1840s, it doesn't list the name of any of them. If this is the case, then the parishioners may have colloquially referred to the church as St Teresa's, even though it wasn't its official name. I personally think that Virginia's mind plucked the name from her current life's memories and that it was an example of cryptomnesia, but I only believe that cryptonesia comes into play with regard to the names. So Bridie said she went through a second ceremony to please Brian, and it was performed to keep the Catholic Church happy when she had children. She promised Brian that if they had children, they'd be brought up Catholic. Unfortunately, the precaution was unnecessary, as Bridie and Brian never had children. At this point... Maury asked Bridie if she remembered Brian's uncle and she said with some indignation that Brian's father was upset when an uncle married an orange but he wasn't upset when Brian married her. What Bridie means by this is that Brian's uncle married a family who were members of the Orange Order which was also called the Loyal Orange Association. The Orange were an Irish Protestant political society who were supporters of the Protestant king, King William III of Orange. King William of Orange defeated the Roman Catholic King James II and so he was frowned upon by the Catholics. 
Bridie recalled that that uncle's surname was Plaz, and that's a surname that is more common with Spain than Ireland, but again, that doesn't mean it couldn't exist in Ireland at the time because there would have been emigration and people moving around. Bridie related that while Brian's parents lived in Cork, his grandmother lived in Belfast and that was where they lived after they were married. They lived in a cottage behind her house while Brian went to school. She said the big house, the grandmother's house, was on Dooley Road and they could walk to the main way. The road was a cobbled road. Brian could leave about five minutes before church and he would be there on time. So if I had to put a guess at where Bridie was living, I would say they lived somewhere pretty close to, if not on, Peters Hill, which a little confusingly is the name of the road. The road itself is called Peters Hill. And Peters Hill is a five-minute walk to what is currently known as St. Patrick's Roman Catholic Church. And this church was one of the three churches that was listed in the Irish Historic Towns Atlas as operating in the early 1800s. St. Patrick's Roman Catholic Church was first opened in 1815, which means it would have been an established church by the time Bridie and Brian arrived to make their new home in 1818. Peters Hill is the beginning of a road called Shankill Road that was then and is still considered to be the main thoroughfare through western Belfast, or as Bridie would call it, the main way. It's close to the city centre as she describes. I could not find a Dooley Road anywhere on the old map, but there were a couple of variations of Donegal Street. St Patrick's Roman Catholic Church is on Donegal Street. Bridie mentioned that it was a cobbled road. Peters Hill Road was still a cobbled road in 1902. And Peters Hill is also a 29-minute walk to Queen's University where Brian ended up teaching. Bridie said that Brian worked for his father, but initially she said Brian's parents came from Cork, so I wonder if Brian's father also moved to Belfast at the same time as the young couple. If not, how could Brian work for his father when his parents started out in Cork and presumably would have still been there unless they moved? Or did he then become a Belfast extension of his father's business, whatever that may have been? The young couple settled down to life together and their marriage was happy. Bridie made many statements about her life with Brian. Bridie cooked and Brian's favourite meal was boiled beef with onions. He liked potatoes, no matter how you cooked them. He liked cake too and Bridie always teased him that she could make a cake and he would still eat it with potatoes. Bridie herself liked potato cakes, which sound a little bit like a potato pancake. She also cooked beef and radishes and stews. Bridie and Brian's friends were Mary Catherine and her husband, Kevin Moore. Brian and Bridie loved to go over and visit the Moores as they had children. There appears to have been a sadness and wistfulness about Bridie and Brian's inability to have children. Skeptics of Bridie's story have pointed out that she said she bought her clothes rather than describing she had clothes and shoes made for her, as would have been the custom of the time. But this is in fact incorrect. What she actually says is, there was a Caden house. It was a place for uh, women's apparel. Things that ladies would, blouses and camisoles and, and 
she actually makes no mention at all about whether the clothes were on the rack or made to order. At one point, Maury tries to get her to talk about buying camisoles and she simply says, Oh, I... Uh... Hmm. I went there two times. That's a ladies' thing. You know, that's a... I find her hesitancy intriguing and I'd ask you to keep it in mind as there's a point I'm going to bring up later where Bridie's emotions may affect her willingness to discuss a subject. In this case, she obviously feels embarrassed and possibly a little guilty and ashamed to be discussing the subject with a man as it would have been quite scandalous and very indecent to discuss women's undergarments with a man in the 1800s. However, to address the issue of the debunk, at no point does Bridie actually say she bought clothes off the rack, and she does not say that the clothes were pre-made. At another point in the book, Bridie very clearly describes getting up one morning for a fitting as she was having three new white slips made for her by her mother when she was a child. She had white slippers that were sent to her, but we don't know if they were made for her and then sent, or whether she meant that they were pre-made shoes. Bridie also made mention of the grocery John Carrigan's, and there was a rope company and a tobacco company. Brian did the shopping at the greengrocer. She said the name of the greengrocer was John Carrigan. A librarian that was employed to do research for Maury Bernstein was able to find a John Carrigan who ran a business as a grocer at 90 Northumberland Street. Likewise, William Farr, who she also remembered as buying groceries from, was a grocer at 59 to 61 Mustard Street, which lay between Donegal Street and North Street. So again, Donegal Street comes into play, suggesting that this was an area that Bridie knew well. She went to Farr's for foodstuffs. At this point, Bridie mentioned firk and butter, asking if Maury had tried it. Firkin butter is a butter that was heavily flavoured with garlic and then was knuckled into a wooden firkin, which is basically a wooden bucket that I assume had a lid, because the next step is then to bury the butter in the peat bog. The longer it was left, the more delicious it became. Apparently it was left so long that some people planted trees on it so that they could mark where they buried it. Excavated firkins in the Irish Museum contain a greyish cheese-like substance that's partially hardened and doesn't look anything at all like butter. But the butter didn't decay or putrefy because of the cool, antiseptic, anaerobic and acidic properties of peat bogs. Firkin butters are some of the commonest archaeological finds in Ireland. This tradition appears to have ceased around the end of the 1800s, so it would have been around during Bridie's life. The next obvious question is, how did Virginia Ty know about a quite bizarre food product that was handmade, no longer available, and hadn't been available for at least 150 years? Bridie remembered going to a wake with Brian. Wakes were always held the day before they'd take the body to ditch them or bury them. Bridie said they were sad affairs where you were served tea and biscuits, but traditionally wakes are a mixture of sadness and joy as the attendees reflect on the lives and exploits of the person who's died. So they can be sad, but there can also be times of laughter and happy reminiscence. However, perhaps the wake Bridie attended was a business colleague of Brian's and was therefore perhaps more serious while they were attending. 
She was correct when she recalled that people sat up with the body all night. Brian taught at Queen's University for some time. Bridie never went there, but she knew of some of his colleagues there. It sounds like Brian was reticent about discussing his career with Bridie as she stated that he didn't want to tell her about it. Maury pointed out to Bridie that Queen's University was a Protestant school and Brian was Roman Catholic. Bridie answered that he taught law, he didn't teach religion. This comment came in one of the later sessions and in the fifth session, Bridie Murphy's personality really started to show itself. She was saucy, rather flippant, and registered moods ranging from suspicion to gaiety. For example, at one point, Maury asked her if she had any secret hiding spots where she hid money, and she asked, Why do you want to know? And the suspicion in her voice made everyone in the room laugh. Maury asked her the name of Brian's co-workers, and she said, William McGlone, and she thought there was a Fitzhugh and a Fitzmaurice. Maury pointed out to Bridie that Queen's University was only known as that after 1845, so that meant that Brian was about 50 or maybe even older when he started teaching there, and Bridie agreed with that statement. So this was another of the points brought up by the sceptics as proof that Bridie didn't exist. Life claimed that there was no Queen's University in Belfast until 1908. The Denver Post's William Barker learned that Queen Victoria decreed its founding in 1845, and he is correct, and this can be confirmed by the university's own website. There doesn't seem to be any indication of what Brian did before he worked for the university, except for the references that he worked for his father for free. Brian would have been allowed to teach at the university because of the Catholic Emancipation, or more specifically, the Roman Catholic Relief Act, which was passed in 1829. Before this law came into being, Catholics were forbidden to purchase land, hold civil or military offices, inherit property or practice their religion without incurring civil penalties, which could be another reason why Catholic churches weren't named, as they may have been skating along under the radar, so to speak. Brian also wrote articles for the Belfast Newsletter. The Belfast Newsletter does exist and is one of the main daily papers for Northern Ireland. Bridie couldn't tell Maury what the articles were about, but that's unsurprising given that Brian seems to have been reticent with her about what he did. Bridie felt that he would have signed his articles. She said the articles were above her. The Belfast Newsletter is an interesting paper, but it also raises an interesting question with regard to Brian. Published in 1737 in the form of a letter of one or two pages, it's been published non-stop ever since, covering events such as the trial and execution of highwayman Dick Turpin, the potato famine and its consequences, and it was also one of the few papers still in existence that reported on the American Declaration of Independence. But my interest is piqued because it changed my views on who Brian was. I'd always assumed that he was a Catholic from Southern Ireland, and as such, I would have thought that he would have been loyal to the Republican movement, which wanted a united Ireland that was free of British rule and for Ireland to be run as a republic. When the Belfast newsletter first came out, it was indeed a Republican paper. However, in 1844, the owner, Alexander Mackay, died, and the paper was then controlled by J.A. Henderson and his wife who switched to a unionist stance. In other words, 
They supported the English monarchy and the Constitution of the United Kingdom. Brady said that Brian didn't work for the paper until 25 years or more, maybe more, after Brady and Brian were married, which would have been around the time that the paper swapped from a Republican to a Unionist stance in 1844. Was that why Brian worked for them? Because they switched from Republican to Unionist? Was Brian from Protestant landowner stock too originally? And somewhere along the way his family converted to the Catholic faith? It might explain why a Protestant family and a Catholic family were so close that Brian and his father were invited as such esteemed guests to a Protestant household. This visit was such an auspicious occasion that her mother made Bridie a beautiful new dress for the occasion. To me, that implies that these were not ordinary guests, that they were held in high regard, and it could imply that Bridie's family were hoping for Brian to be a marital prospect for their daughter from the very beginning. It's an interesting thought, but we won't really ever know, I suppose. But to carry on, Bridie stated the lights in Belfast were on poles and burning in some way. This is true. They were gas lamps that were placed around the time of Bridie and Brian coming to Belfast and they caused a sensation when they were placed as they gave off much better light. Bridie herself didn't seem particularly interested, however, and after giving this fact suggested that Maury should talk to Brian about it. When it comes to money, Bridie was uneasy talking about it and at one point told Maury that she wasn't supposed to know about money. She said that Brian handled everything as they had an arrangement. However, she did describe the coins of the time correctly, as those being tuppence, halfpenny, and sixpence. She also knew that there were pound notes. Bridie said that they'd had to sign papers to give a tithing to the church. She also said that all of the family information would have been put on the church board when they listed their marriage bans. At the end of the fourth session of the hypnotherapy sessions, Another thing happened that was latched onto by the sceptics to try and debunk Bridie's story. At the end of the session, Virginia gave a massive sneeze and sat up with her eyes open and asked for a linen. Everyone in the room was startled as they'd never seen someone under hypnosis act this way. Maury and the watchers were unsure if Virginia was still in a trance or not, and it sounds like they were a bit creeped out by the suddenness of it. There was confusion about who she was and what time she was in. Feeling very unsettled, Maury opted to bring Virginia out of the trance early. She took a long time to come out and was very slow to accept that she was in Rye, Colorado. She still kept talking as if she were bridey. So the sceptics claim that Virginia's use of the word linen was the wrong use of the word at that time to describe a handkerchief in the 1800s, and they're right about that. But the real question is, was she Bridie at the time she said it, or was she Virginia, still confused and muddled about what time period she was in? And in her muddled state, was she quite simply unable to think of the word for handkerchief? Bridie said that she died after falling downstairs and breaking her hip at the age of 66. After breaking her hip, she became a terrible burden and had to be carried everywhere after which he just kind of frittered away. Brian was still alive and was there with her and took good care of her, but he was so tired all the time. She was living in Belfast when she died. She died on a Sunday. She wasn't in pain, just tired, and she went to sleep.
She said Brian left her, deserted her, but he didn't think she was going to go that fast. Brian got a lady to stay with her so that he could go to church and it upset him terribly that he wasn't there when she died. Bridie watched the funeral or her body being ditched as she described it. And this was another point that the sceptics jumped on saying that it wasn't a term that was used. Well, how do we know? When I grew up, we called haircuts bockers and nobody outside of my class in high school has ever heard that word. We just accepted it as being legitimate. I also have a friend who calls me a monk when she thinks I'm being ridiculous. I can find no reference to this being a slang term for an idiot. I think it's something that's unique to her. So ditching might have been something that Bridie herself used, even if nobody else did. That can't be proven. It can't be debunked either, but it can't be proven. So Bridie spoke about the people at her funeral. There was Brian, her friends, Mary Catherine and her husband Kevin, and the man who played the Illin Pipe, which is a musical instrument specific to Ireland at the time that sounds a bit like a nasal bagpipe. Bridie recalled the numbers on her tombstone as reading 1798 to 1864. She remembered Brian being very upset that the four in 1864 was not very clear. He complained it wasn't done very plain. When Bridie was buried, she didn't receive the last rites or extreme unction and she was buried in unconsecrated ground as she wasn't Catholic. Maury then asked Virginia if she'd ever heard of the astral plane and she responded yes, she had. Maury then went into quite a few questions asking about her time on the astral plane. What he's talking about, of course, is what we now call the intermission period or the time between lives. Virginia ended up describing quite a lot of the things that fit in with our current knowledge. For example, we have a non-corporeal existence that we don't eat, drink or taste, that we can't touch things, we don't get tired, we don't have to sleep, etc. And that when she left the world, she was born again. However, Bridie's memories of the intermission period are interesting in that they don't follow the standard Western recount and are more like the descriptions of people from other countries like India or Sri Lanka. She said she died, but she stayed at the house. She said that Brian wouldn't listen to her when she tried to talk to him. She wanted so badly for people still on earth to listen to her, but she couldn't get them to hear her. She said Brian was so worried, and I think she wanted to console him. He was afraid he hadn't said enough prayers or he hadn't gone to church enough. She said there was no sense of time, but she could tell time was passing by observing Brian. She would know it was night time because she could watch Brian go to bed and living people just accept the day and the night. I think she means we have patterns that we follow that are dictated by day and night. She said you could talk to people, and by that I think she means other souls when they're on the other side, but you couldn't talk for very long as they would go away. She said where they were was a journey, just a passing phase. Nothing is important and where you are is endless. She said she liked where she was, but not as much as living, as it wasn't full enough. You couldn't do things. You couldn't accomplish anything. You couldn't talk to people for very long because they would go away. She doesn't say where they were going to, but as Bridie was the only one who seemed to stay, her experiences seemed to be different from other souls or consciousnesses that she encountered. 
The connection to Father John comes in again, as Bridie says she stayed at the house Brian and she lived in until Father John died peacefully in his sleep. Bridie didn't watch him die, but she said that she felt bad that he had died. She said it's not like the grief we have here on earth, it's nothing to be afraid of. She said he came to her because he wanted to see her. They talked and then Father John said he was going to his home and he left. Virginia said she knows he's alive again now though because she just knows that you live. Whatever closure or resolution she needed with Father John, she seems to have achieved it because after his soul left the house, she left too and she went back to Cork. Interestingly, she didn't wait around until Brian died. It was only after Father John died that she left. She said, you don't travel as such, you just will yourself to be somewhere and pretty soon you'll be there. Maury asked Virginia if she knew what was going on in Belfast while she was in Cork, while she was on the astral plane, and she said no, she didn't watch, but you could. You could see anything you wanted just by willing it. Maury asked her if she could see what Brian was thinking, and Bridie said she knew when he missed her and that he was lonely after Father John died as Father John would visit while he was alive. Maury asked again if she could read his thoughts, and Bridie answered, if I thought of it, I could know what he wanted and think. So when Bridie left her marital home, she went back home to Cork and to her brother. He was still alive and Bridie expressed surprise that he was so old. Maury points out that at this point he would have been in his 70s. She tried to sit on his bed and speak to him, but he'd never answer her. She said he finally died, but he didn't join her. So to follow up on Duncan's life, Bridie said that he married Mrs. Strain's daughter, Amy, which wasn't spelled in the traditional way, but more in the French style of A-I-M-E-E. Duncan had had children, and Bridie said that he became a barrister, but that he also became a cropper like his father. That's the way it went. When asked what crops Duncan grew, she said flax and hay, tobacco and corn. I wouldn't have thought tobacco would have been grown. However, it was indeed grown in Ireland after an existing ban on tobacco cultivation was lifted around that time. It is known that by 1831, tobacco was being extensively grown, particularly in County Wexford. She saw lots of people that she didn't know on the other side, but she didn't see everybody she knew. She saw Father John and she saw the little baby brother that died as a baby. She said the baby talked to her, but he didn't know who she was. Initially, she had to tell him who she was. The baby then told her about some of the things that he remembered. He didn't remember anything about the house or their mother, but he remembered Duncan would run through the house and push the cradle, making it tip and spill the baby out so that he could fall. Then Duncan would run and hide and her mother would think that Bridie had done it. It sounds like Duncan had done this on more than one occasion. The baby was unhurt as the cradle was on the floor. Maury asked her if she liked her littlest brother. Bridie replied, yes, she liked him, but he was always so sick and her mother was always with him. Bridie said she never saw her mother, but her father said he saw her, so she must have at some point seen her father as well. So the other general facts that Bridie knew that didn't relate to her marriage, she knew that Limerick was a county, she knew Galway was a port, she used Irish words or idioms such as loch for rivers and lakes, braid for a small cup that was wished upon, and tup, which, to put it coyly, 
is a mating ram, making it clear how it was meant to be used when relating to a man. So Life magazine disputed the Irish expressions ditch, tub, loch and linen. The word loch is used correctly, as it does describe bodies of water, whether they're lakes, rivers or streams, and in the 1800s it was a more generalised term and less specific than it is today. In fact, there is a Belfast loch that Bridie would have been very well aware of, as Belfast basically is built around the edges of it, and it's the main shipping port there. Tub, as mentioned, is also used correctly. An English author who listened to the recording said that a braid or cup that was wished upon was actually a quate. Again, I can't find any reference to that, but perhaps it was a word that was slipping out of the language even in the 50s, and therefore it's not strongly documented anywhere. Bridie mentioned the custom of putting money in a bride's pockets while she danced, and this is true. It's considered to be good luck for the bride and groom. Maury asked her the names of some other locks. Bridie provided Lochmunster. She said there was a loch for each of the provinces and that there were four provinces. She struggled to name the provinces but named Munster and Ulster. There are indeed four provinces and interestingly, Munster is the most southern province and the one that Bridie lived in as a child in Cork and Ulster is the most northern one and the one she would have lived in in Belfast. I couldn't find a loch Munster but there is Orbeg which is a river known as the Munster Blackwater. She said women wore tiny sacks of rice strapped to the leg as a purity charm. I'm not sure about this one as I can't find any reference to it. So the jury is out for me on this one unless one of my listeners can shed some light on that. Another claim from the sceptics stated that Bridie's recollection of her mother telling her about kissing the Blarney Stone in 1810 is false as the legend originated from a poem written about 1840. This is just blatantly false, and I'm surprised anyone was foolish enough to even suggest it. There are many myths around the origin of the Blarney Stone, but the most plausible myth surrounding the stone's legend with relation to kissing it is that Queen Elizabeth I approached Cormac Ty McCarthy, demanding he handed over his rights to his land, as she wanted all of the Irish chiefs to give over their land titles to her. They would then occupy the land under her title. Cormac Ty McCarthy, the Lord of Blarney, was able to use his words and wit to satisfy the Queen without officially signing over his land rights. Some asserted that the stone gave Cormac the gift of eloquence after an old woman or a witch told him of the stone's power. So if this was the myth that the rest came from, Queen Elizabeth ruled from 1558 to 1603, so that would mean that the myth has been around at least since then. The website of Blarney Castle states that people of note and high esteem have been kissing the Blarney Stone for over 200 years, so I think we can safely lay this debunk to rest. So, to tidy up the debunking statements made by Chicago American and Life magazine that I haven't covered yet, The Chicago American cites as proof a neighbour who lived across the street from Virginia when she was a child. The woman's full name was Mrs. Anthony Bridie Murphy Corkle. According to the American, Virginia was fascinated by the family, had a crush on one of the boys named John, which is an anglicised version of Brian, thereby making him the husband Bridie remembers. They then add the riposte that a one-time neighbourhood playmate Remembered Virginia well, saying that she had a good imagination, I always thought she could write a book. 
So with regard to Virginia having a fertile imagination and she could have written a book, the American never cited the name or even identified this alleged playmate and as such this information should only be considered unchecked and hearsay. So Virginia countered these allegations by saying she never knew of the maiden name of Mrs Corkle and although she did play with her children she never really spoke to Mrs Corkle. As I point out in the story, it is possible that she did see something or pick up the name, but that doesn't make the whole thing erroneous, just the names. The boy, John, that Virginia allegedly had a crush on, actually worked for Sunday Chicago American. So any information he provided must be considered at the very least biased by his association with the newspaper. Bridie said that she came from County Cork and she knew a lot about life in County Cork. The American claimed that the name Cork came from Mrs Corkle's name and that Bridie transposed it. But if that was the case, how did she have the information that she knew about County Cork? Mrs Corkle came from County Mayo, a county Bridie never referenced. So my thoughts on this point are If Mrs. Corkle was Bridie Murphy Corkle, as the Chicago American claims, and if that is true, that's a huge coincidence that can't be glossed over. Virginia said she didn't know Mrs. Corkle's name, but that doesn't mean she can't have found the information inadvertently and forgot where she knew it. The coincidence, if true, is too large to dismiss. However, I found the Chicago American statements were also quite dubious in spots, Let's look at the American's claim that John is the anglicised version of Brian and that Bridie's remembrance of her husband's name as Brian comes from her transposing her childhood crush's name into its anglicised version. The problem with that theory is that this fact is quite simply not true. There is no anglicised version of Brian as it's been in use in England in its own right since the Britons brought it to England in the 5th and 6th centuries when they settled there. They made the similar claim with Bridie's references to Cork, saying that it was a cross-reference from Mrs Corkle's surname. Their theory is that Virginia gained all of her knowledge of Ireland from Mrs Corkle and from her cousin, Marie Burns, who was Irish and spoke of Ireland often to Virginia, telling her tales of the old country all the time. That might explain her choosing Cork as a reference point but it does not explain how Virginia had so much knowledge about the area, referencing the Meadows and the Day School, which is the correct name for the schools at the time, the fact that she lived at the school during the week and knew what crops were grown in Cork. Mrs Corkle came from County Mayo, so Virginia couldn't have picked up any of that information from her about County Cork, even if she did speak to her, and Virginia claims she didn't. Virginia could only remember two of the four provinces of Ireland and she tells us Bridie lived in both of them. She knew of Munster which Cork is in and Ulster which Belfast is in. Why couldn't she name the province of Connacht which Mayo is in if Mrs Corkle had been one of her references for her information as the Chicago American claimed? So because I don't want to be sued I'll simply ask what that suggests about the level of research and journalism that the Chicago American was prepared to stoop to in order to debunk the story, which to me is worse than cryptomnesia, because there is no attempt at deception or coercion in Virginia's recollection, whereas I cannot say the same thing with regard to the Chicago American's errors.
It's interesting that no interviews with Mrs. Corkle were ever given to anyone not associated with the Chicago American, particularly when you consider what a massive controversy this case created. According to a tiny snippet I found about her, she refused interviews with everyone who wasn't associated with the Chicago American, but I can't verify that, so I can't be sure if that's true or not. If it is, though, it's interesting in itself, as she was the wedge that was supposed to split this case wide open, and I'm sure she would have received a lot of enticements to be interviewed by other news groups and media shows. Why was so much doubt placed on Virginia's account, yet Mrs. Corkle's statements were accepted at face value, particularly when all of that information coming from her was controlled by the Chicago American? The other point that the American put forward as evidence was that Virginia had an aunt named Marie Burns who was born in New York and raised in Chicago, but was of Scotch-Irish ancestry. She lived with Virginia's parents when Virginia was 18 and she frequently spoke about Ireland and told Virginia lots of stories about it. That's what the Chicago American claimed. To counter, Virginia said that Marie Burns wasn't particularly interested in Ireland. She did not tell Virginia tales about Ireland. So my debunk on that is I'd like to note that Mrs Burns was born in New York and raised in Chicago. Having Irish DNA is unlikely to give you extensive memories of Ireland. So now this brings us to the two final pieces of alleged proof provided by the sceptics about why Virginia's recollection is false. But to understand fully, we have to understand a little bit about life in Ireland at the time. As is always the way with these things, there's a lot more involved in the history than I can go into. But I'll go into the nuts and bolts that relate to this story. So to give you context, before Henry VIII, the Irish were basically a tribal society that lived in clans and pretty much everyone was Catholic. Henry VIII wanted to break away from the Catholic Church and created the Church of England. His daughter Queen Elizabeth I consolidated this religion. When she died on the 24th of March 1603, James I took over the throne. Now James was already the King of Scotland, where he was known as James VI, so he's, he's often subsequently referred to as King James VI and I. When he took over the throne, he became the King of Scotland, England and Ireland, creating the United Kingdom. He then created the King James Bible, which was not accepted by those of the Catholic faith. So as you can imagine, this new Bible went down like a lead balloon in Ireland. James systematically forced the Irish out of Northern Ireland, planting Protestant supporters in their place. He did this because Ulster, which is the Northern province, was so resistant to English control. His hope was that seeding Anglicans there might anglicise control and civilise the north. The Irish that were living there were forced south and west to Connacht, and those that refused to leave were killed. So it ended up with a situation of a largely Catholic Irish population in the south and an Anglican Protestant population in the north, most of whom were landowners because the king had given them land, assuring their loyalty. Not surprisingly, this created a lot of hostility and anger between the two groups. So after James died 
in March 1625, his son, Charles I, took over. Charles sounds like he was a bit headstrong and he clashed with the English Parliament, believing in the divine right of kings to rule, or in other words, he believed the king has supreme power and should be left to govern the country. Parliament didn't agree with this and a civil war ensued. Parliament assembled their own forces led by Oliver Cromwell, who then marched against King Charles I's forces before defeating them. Remember, there's a lot more to all of this than I'm saying. This is just the skeleton version. Charles I was beheaded on Tuesday the 30th of January in 1649 and Parliament created a short-lived Commonwealth of England, effectively making England a republic. In Cromwell's Irish campaign that lasted from 1649 to 1653, Cromwell left King James settlers alone but secured control of the east of Ireland from Drogheda, 30 miles north of Dublin, to Cork in the south. Cromwell hated the Irish and imposed extremely harsh restrictions on the Irish Catholic population. Strict new laws were in place forbidding the use of Gaelic and banning Cromwell soldiers from intermarrying with the Irish. The consequences of disobeying were dire and consisted of demotion, flogging and exile. The effect was basically the ruination of both people's lives and they wouldn't have been allowed to stay together anyway. By the time Bridie and Brian were married, things had understandably relaxed a little from these earlier strict laws, but they still created long-standing echoes in both communities. And even today, Ireland remains divided into the North and South and there is still resistance to Northern Ireland being reunited to Southern Ireland. In Bridie's time, as she talked about herself, marriage between Catholics and Protestants would have been unusual as there was still a degree of segregation and distrust on both sides, which is why I found it so interesting that Bridie's family was so keen to invite a union between Brian and his family and Bridie and hers. For the past 400 years, Catholics have basically been denied the right to participate in government. Effectively, the short viewpoint is that the laws of the day kept the Catholic population knuckled down. And although both sides were declared to be equal, it was clear that Ireland was considered to be separate from the mother country, which is England, and was a colony that was there to supply England. And it was not allowed to compete against England. England came first. Of course, King James's Protestant settlers thrived under these conditions as they could hold jobs of power and they owned land. For the Irish, who were not allowed to hold land, weren't allowed to speak their own language, weren't allowed to be involved in the politics and couldn't inherit, life was tough. So, to discuss the final two points that the sceptics make about Bridie's account, the first issue that they take is that Bridie failed to mention anything at all about the Great Potato Famine that occurred over four years from 1845 to 1849 and would have affected not just Bridie but all her friends as well. They found it ridiculous that no mention should have been made by this by Virginia. And this was seen as proof that her memories were false, made up or just a straight out hoax. They also said that she failed to mention the Catholic emancipation that occurred when Bridie was 31. The Catholic emancipation was an act that passed in Parliament that eased a lot of the restrictions I've talked about. Catholics could now be admitted to Parliament and hold jobs in public offices. 
This, of course, would have had a major effect on Brian's ability to progress in his career. And in fact, if he really was a barrister, he would have been forbidden to practice before the Catholic Emancipation Act was passed. So why did Bridie not mention them? Well, in fact, she did, in her own way, very briefly. Maury, in fact, tried to lead her to talk about the Great Potato Famine by asking her during one of the sessions to go to the time when she was around 47 and he asked her if she had plenty to eat. Bridie answered, There was... uh, I remember... We did. And that's all she said about that. So, in a time of great famine that wiped out one million people and forced 1.5 million more to emigrate to America... Bridie had enough food. The reason for that is, although the potato famine wiped out the poor who relied on potatoes as a cheap food source, Ireland doesn't only produce potatoes. It has a rich and diverse agriculture and produces many other foods like oats, grain, beef, flax, wheat, vegetables, livestock, and none of these were affected. The only crop that was affected was potatoes. The problem there, though, was that although these other foods were still being produced in the middle of all this poverty, starvation and death, they were being shipped to England to make a lot of money off them. In Cork, in 1846, Coast Guard Robert Mann travelled the country, reporting on seeing many starving and desperate people, and then writes... We were literally stopped by carts laden with grain, butter, bacon, etc., being taken to the vessels loading from the quay. Bridie, in a comfortable lifestyle, with no need to worry about food, in the midst of so much poverty, suffering and death, came from a family of wealthy Protestant landowners who were being comfortably sustained from the money being made from these crops, while everyone around them was starving to death. I can imagine there was quite a degree of conflict in Bridie's mind and no doubt a degree of guilt, which explains Virginia's reticence to talk about it. The only other reference she makes that might also touch on the famine is that Bridie remembers friends of her mother and father, the Witties, emigrating to America. They went to Pennsylvania. They wrote to her mother and father. With regard to the Catholic Emancipation Act, Bridie doesn't mention it directly, but she did say, Ah, uh, there was trouble. Well, the people in the South, uh, they didn't want anything to do with England. They, all they, want to send no representative, have nothing to do with them. We, people wouldn't talk Gaelic. Grandfather wouldn't talk Gaelic. He would say Gaelic is only for the tongues of peasants. So I think what Bridie is talking about there is the resistance by the Catholics in the South to the unjust laws that they were forced to live under. And I think the reference to her grandfather not speaking Gaelic was possibly demonstrating a commonly held viewpoint among the wealthy Protestant population that the South was being unreasonable. That's not my viewpoint, but I think that might have been the viewpoint of the Protestant population at the time. There was a continual power struggle going on over the centuries between the Catholic populace and the powerful Irish Protestants and British Tories, 
who were afraid of the influence held by the Pope. Eventually, in 1828, the British government was facing nationwide rebellion in Ireland if they didn't take action towards conciliation, and this effectively forced them into creating the Emancipation Act of 1829, which of course would have given Brian the ability to teach at Queen's University further down the track. And we also have to remember too, with regard to the Catholic Emancipation Act, Bridie has made it clear that Brian did not discuss his work with her. She was not allowed to handle money, and for her to become involved in politics, or even to discuss political struggles the country was going through, would have been considered most unbecoming for a woman, and definitely unladylike. Even in the 20th century, the suffragettes were viewed as unattractive, unfeminine, and neglectful to their families and husbands, or even worse, incapable of getting a husband at all. The sad truth is that women were not encouraged to be involved in current events or politics in the 1800s. Thank you for sticking with me on this long ramble through Bridie's life. It's been a bit of a journey. It does leave me with the usual questions I ask, which is what do I believe about Virginia and her statements? Do I believe Bridie Murphy existed? Well, yes and no. I think a woman existed who lived the life that Virginia described that was by and large for the most part accurate to Virginia's recount, except for the natural anomalies that creep in with hypnotic regression. But I don't think her name was Bridie Murphy. One of the curious things about reincarnation, particularly when you look at how important names, addresses and phone numbers and street names are to us now while we're alive, are that these are the first thing we seem to forget when we leave the life we're in, and they seem to be one of the hardest things to remember when trying to recall the memories. So it doesn't really bother me that the names Virginia Ty provided might be examples of cryptonesia. Bridie's husband was Brian McCarthy. Virginia's husband was Hugh Brian Ty. The other point to make about Bridie's story is this. Life magazine and Chicago American picked up approximately six or seven facts in their attempt to debunk this story, and most of these debunked facts have been debunked themselves. There is not one fact that Virginia gave that has been definitely proven to be in error, apart from possibly the names of people, streets and churches, and that can be explained by cryptomnesia. There was so much information taken from those sessions that can definitely be proven to be correct, as I've just covered. How did Virginia know the names of businesses that existed 150 years before she was born, in a town thousands of miles away in another land? How did she know about Thurk and Butter? How to correctly pronounce words in a language that particularly in the 50s was so decimated it was almost obliterated? I think our Irish housewife is still out there, hidden by the error of a misremembered name and buried in the mists of time. If I were trying to find Bridie Murphy now, I'd forget about looking for the names of the main players in this story. I'd focus on the facts about her life that she provides and I'd see if I could find someone with a similar life that fits. I'd be looking for marriages that occurred around 1818 in the three Catholic churches that were present in Belfast at the time that included the marriage between a Catholic man and a Protestant woman. I would be starting with St. Patrick's Church because I'd bet good money on that being the church Brian went to. 
I'd be seeing if those churches kept copies of the posted bans because it would list that the woman was Protestant and the man was Catholic, which would have been an anomaly at the time, and I'd be asking to see records of tithes for the early 1800s beginning at 1818. I'd also be checking out the death notices of the churches and then the graveyard to see if any of those names had a tombstone where the 4 of 1864 wasn't particularly clear. If the tombstone belonged to a 66-year-old woman, then that's a very promising lead. The Belfast newsletter was listing death notices and obituaries in the 1860s, and so I'd be checking them out as well, because if Brian posted a death notice about Bridie, the chances are he would do it in the paper that he had written for. But again, you'd need to keep your mind open and remember not just to look for the name Bridie Murphy. There has to be some truth to this account, because unless Virginia Tye was completely fascinated with Ireland, and I know for a fact she wasn't, there just is too much information that Virginia knows that she couldn't possibly know if she hadn't studied Ireland extensively. Do I think Maury and Virginia were perpetuating a hoax? No, I don't. Maury was fascinated in reincarnation, but Virginia certainly wasn't, and she wasn't someone who was interested in being in the limelight either. She, in fact, insisted on a pseudonym when Maury told her he was going public. Maury's description of Virginia Ty's own reaction on hearing the memories gives a very good indication of who Ginny was. When she first heard about them, she was stunned by the impact of Bridie's words and what they meant and remained astounded as the story unfolded. But after hearing the tapes, her interest very quickly subsided and she returned to her normal life as a housewife. Maury states that even playing bridge or watching the local baseball club took definite priority over another bridey session. She just accepted the fact that she said it and then went back to doing the things she liked doing. It had absolutely no effect on her viewpoint or the way she lived her life, apart from the incredible interest it generated. At the time of the recordings, she told Murray she didn't know what was on the tapes, but she reassured Murray that she'd not read anything regarding Ireland or Irish history, adding that she didn't even own an encyclopedia or a library card. Virginia was not interested in fame or notoriety, and she refused all interviews for years and declined to participate in the making of the 1956 movie. She later said she didn't like the film, she stated at one point that if she'd known what was going to happen, she would never have lain down on the couch. In 1976, Virginia Tye, by this time Virginia Morrow, because she'd divorced and remarried, told the Los Angeles Times that she remembered nothing of what she said of Bridie Murphy under hypnosis, but she considered the recollections valid. She was ambivalent about reincarnation, she said, I've been conditioned all my life not to believe in reincarnation, but the weight of evidence seems to be going towards that belief. Virginia and Murray have both died now, but Murray maintained his belief in the veracity of the sessions till the end. So I hope it gave him some solace as he approached his own death. Thank you for listening to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. We hope you enjoyed this case. If you have any interesting stories about reincarnation or if you can relate your own past life experiences, I'd love to hear about them. And I can be contacted through my email at reincarnationplr at gmail.com or via my Facebook page called Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. We'll be back again soon with another episode, but until then, remember you are unique 
and your life has a purpose.